Individuals and businesses with tax problems listen carefully. Do you feel like you're losing control over your finances? If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services and take advantage of the Fresh Start program and new laws that may allow us to negotiate a settlement for the lowest amount possible. Our team of tax attorneys and enrolled agents can stop collections and get you protected so you can take control of your financial future. Tax Mediation Services is accredited by the Better Business Bureau. Call now for a free case review and a price protection guaranteed quote. Call Tax Mediation Services now at 800-616-4080. That's 800-616-4080. 800-616-4080. This is Radio Influence. This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders. Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan. A new mixed martial arts association is out there, and who would have thought it would be Bjorn Rebney as one of the guys involved in it. And, of course, we're going to get into here on this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast. Of course, I am Jason Floyd. And uh, once again, joined by Sam Kaplan. Sam, you tell me last week, hey, I'm not going to, you know, it's, you know, we'll do this one show, then we'll see what kind of happens, and then uh, they bring you right back into it. Jason, when I tweeted you that I had an interest in doing a show with you this week, once you heard the report, you kind of you kind of knew what was going to happen. Yeah, I will tell you this. It's kind of you, you were you weren't surprised by me reaching out, were you? I wasn't necessarily shocked, but I will tell you this. It was actually on uh, on Sunday night. I got home from from doing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers game and. I was starting to sit there going, man, I don't have a guest lined up for the Insider Show this week. And I, I started going through my phone and going, okay, who, who do I want to reach out to this week? And then, of course, everything kind of breaks down. And uh, not not only do I have this show booked, but I have next week's show booked already. And uh, Yes, you do. And it's uh, a very big get from what I understand, Jason. I can't believe this person is targeted to come on the podcast. I'm still, you know, and that's why I'm, you know, and I'll say it right here at the beginning. Targeted to join me next week here on the podcast, Bjorn Rebney. I reached out to Bjorn on Monday after all this came down, and Bjorn got back to me pretty quickly, Sam. So I'm interested to uh, have a have a one-on-one conversation with Bjorn to, you know, talk about the announcement that came down today. And, and it was a two-hour conference call. It was a long conference call, Sam. And I think one of the takeaways I come away from it is, is kind of that mindset of when the PFA uh, got announced where you kind of sat there and said, this sounds exciting, but I, you know, I, I guess I'm temper, tempering my excitement level this time. Here's the thing, though. This Fighters Association, to me, is essentially like the Death Star, and that's a Star Wars reference. I know you don't follow greatest intellectual property of all time but it's a star wars reference in return of the jedi there was a death star that was half completed yet fully 
operational. This is not the promise of a union, not the promise of a fighters association. It is operational. Now, there's a lot more work to be done, but from what I understand, you know, reading the tweets about the call, there is an office, there are salaried employees, and you've got five of the biggest names in MMA, active fighters or semi-active fighters, depending on your perspective, that are all sitting on an active board for this association. It's fully operational. Yeah, it's uh, the the home office is in Anaheim Hills, California, which is in Orange County, which uh, I've known that's where Bjorn was living. I had multiple people around me tell me that's where Bjorn was, even though he was uh, totally off the radar. That is where Bjorn Revenue was at. Uh, I, I think one of the also interesting notes that, that came out of this uh, this conference call is that former Bellator matchmaker guy that you worked with, Zach Light is a part of this team with Bjorn Rebney. You made the good point. Zach's involved on the team. Definitely an asset, yet he is embroiled in a lawsuit against Bellator, which is very interesting. It makes for strange bedfellows. The irony in this is if Bjorn is successful and the fighters are successful and this association gains traction and it empowers fighters and same time potentially weakens the UFC Bellator benefits so you know I don't think there's any love loss between Bellator Viacom and Bjorn Rebney and Zach Light yet Bellator could really stand to gain a lot from this if Bjorn pulls this off and you know people are very skeptical of this announcement and understandably so but Having worked with Bjorn closely for five years, I can tell you he is relentless. His resolve is amazing. You know, it's going to take more than a few speed bumps to deter him from pushing this agenda. And one of the tweets that I saw was actually from uh, Jeremy Botter of FlowCombat.com, and essentially paraphrasing what he said is, you know, Bjorn had a, a bad reputation while he was at Bellator, but the guy's a great negotiator, and, and he knows how to get deals done, and, and that may be part of it. And I also saw another tweet uh, from Damon Martin of Fox Sports that I thought was tremendous was, you know, there's a lot of talk about Bjorn's involvement in this association where really there should be a lot of talk about the fighters. And listening to this conference call, to me it was clear as can be Tim Kennedy is 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 the point man. That is the guy that I think if you want to say who is the president of this one, it's definitely Tim Kennedy. You look at all the pro fighter initiatives that have cropped up in the last couple of years, whether it be the MMA. Uh, I, I'm getting all these acronyms confused. Rob Macy's uh, initiative that he's pushing, the PFA, uh, Unite, Unite Here, uh, the Culinary Union, when they, they tried to push uh, union cards. The, the antitrust lawsuit, you look at all of that and compare it to this announcement, there really was not a large involvement of active fighters. You have John Fitch involved with the antitrust lawsuit. You had Leslie Smith, Cajun, uh, uh, Cajun Johnson. Cajun Johnson involved with the MMAFA, and they're active fighters, but we haven't seen major influencers major stars ever publicly attached like this to a pro fighter initiative. We have not seen this type of lineup. 
And one of the interesting things, Sam, to point out is when you look at the board directors, and a major note that came out of this is Bjorn Rebney is not on the board of directors. He's a, uh, he's a strategy guy. I wouldn't say consultant be the right word. I think the word he uses as, as a strategy guy. But the bo- board directors is Tim Kennedy, George St. Pierre, Cain Velasquez, T.J. Dillashaw, and Donald Cerrone. Now, when you look at four of those five fighters, they all fight within the next 30 days, Sam. Right, so Bjorn doesn't have a vote per se, but his influence and potential power if this association gains traction is undeniable because you mentioned it, Jason, they all have fights coming up. They're not going to be pushing this agenda, this initiative every day. They've got a, a fight career to worry about. Who is in that office working every day? Who is running the operations? Who's going out meeting with the fighters? educating the fighters, trying to create as big of a critical mass of support as possible, driving that ship is going to be none other than Bjorn. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see what he can do. By the way, uh, coming up here in about 20 minutes from now, we are scheduled to be joined by Lucas Millbrook and Leslie Smith. Obviously, Leslie Smith has been in the news in terms of her exiting the PFA. Also, Lucas Middlebrook exiting the pfa so going to talk to them and one of the major questions i want to ask lucas is something that bjorn brought up on this conference call is the fact of how he said a union is not the way to go and that a trade association is the way to go interested to hear what lucas's take on that is timing is perfect we originally tried to schedule leslie and lucas just to talk about their departure from the pfa but they're also going to be able to give their takes on the two-hour-plus press conference that just concluded a little while ago with Bjorn and the fighters. So it'll be very interesting to get their take. And, Jason, I'm kind of relieved because usually I have to play the role of pseudo-lawyer on the show. I'm not even going to have to go into that territory. We have an actual attorney that will be live with us coming up very shortly. So that is a tremendous relief. On my part. So we're not going to hear the Sam Kaplan line of, well, I'm not an attorney. No, you're not going to hear that because, like I said, we have an attorney. I'm not going to talk about the legal aspect of this announcement. I'm going to talk about other aspects and other perspectives. One thing that I was thinking about, Jason, during my workout this morning, not sure if you ever saw Godfather 3, but this reminds me of the Godfather 3 with Bjorn playing the role of Michael Corleone. In The Godfather 3, which was not a critically well-received movie, but it was still an important part of the trilogy, at least from my perspective, Michael Corleone attaches himself to uh, banks that are, and real estate that are owned by the Vatican. And the big line that you kept hearing was, you know, Michael Corleone is trying to purify his sins through attaching himself to Vatican-owned businesses. And that's essentially what this reminds me of with Bjorn, because I'm not saying I believe this, but we have to be honest, there's a reputation out there, a perception that Bjorn at times was anti-fighter during his time with Bellator, and there is a negative perception on the part of some people towards Bjorn, and this is an opportunity for him to completely rewrite his history, completely remake mm-hmm. his image by being involved with this. So that, that negative reputation that exists out there, if he's successful in bringing about this organization and getting it to gain traction and making real change, causing real change in the MMA industry and improving conditions for fighters, a lot of the negative stuff, a lot of the negative perception that we've seen pervade out there by Rozufa people and you know just regular people 
some of that's going to dissipate. I would say a lot of that could potentially dissipate. I think one of the questions that a lot of people have is, and it's, it's the first thing that I have wrote down here on, on my notepad, Sam, is Bjorn's intentions. And, and that's got to be, and, and that's going to be a question that, that clearly was asked during this. All should be, should be noted, it was Mark Armani who asked the first question, that CAA is not backing this. Now, Sam, I don't know how many people truly believe that statement, though. Yeah, you know, who is funding this? And that question was asked several times during the press conference, and Bjorn was very vague and nebulous, you know, very nebulous in how he responded to to that question. And it's not cheap to operate an office in Southern California, regardless of the size of that office. It's not cheap to have full-time employees come in and out of that office and then travel around the country to meet with fighters and make presentations. Somebody is footing the bill for this. And it's not going to be cheap. And if it's not CAA, then who is it? And I think that if an investigation was launched, obviously you would not probably find checks written out to the association with the logo of this of, of CAA attached to those checks. But there are creative ways in which you can use third parties to fund initiatives like this. Look at the Hulk Hogan lawsuit against Gawker Media. I mean, that was Peter Thiel who had a major axe to grind with Gawker funding that operation. And there, there, if you're smart, you, there are ways to get money to parties without attaching your name directly to it. You know, one of the things that I thought and was... I'll, I'll, sorry to cut you off. I'm not saying that's the case here. Just something to think about. One of the things that jumped out to me, and, and I'm surprised no one asked this question, and the reason I, I refrained from asking any questions is because I knew I was going to have Bjorn on the podcast next week. So I was like, okay, I, I can kind of sit back and, and listen to see and, and kind of take take notes of more of what questions are, aren't being asked. And one of the questions that surprised me that was not asked was the no one asking about a potential conflict of interest of – A, WME, IMG owning the UFC, and also CAA and the fact of, you know, four out of these five fighters are represented by CAA. And CAA and WME are their competitors. Not only that, you pointed out to me that JP Arncibia is involved with this association Mm -hmm. somehow as well. Who represents JP Arncibia? That would be CAA. So it's very... Very familiar, uh, you know, familiar feel here. I mean, it's very inbred as far as CAA's involvement. I mean, the only non-CAA person that is, was front and center was Donald Cerrone. Now, I'm not sure if Bjorn works for CAA, but there was a report a year or two back from Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer that when GSP did a signing in Southern California, Bjorn Rebney was there, and there was a belief that maybe Bjorn was involved with CAA. And I'll tell you the thing about that is I remember when it happened. It was on a Saturday. It happened. I I don't remember a lot of things, Sam. This is one of the things I'll never forget is someone had told me they had seen a photo where GSP was at a autograph signing and right behind him was Bjorn Rebney, which at first you're kind of like, no, that can't be true. But as time went on, you started to sit there and go, well, yeah, it it is true. And I I think with Bjorn, he's got to win a lot of people over. 
You know, because there's going to be a lot. He's going to walk into to some of these meetings, and there's going to be arms crossed, where guys are going to have their their defense mechanism up, and and they're going to say, why why should I trust you? I I saw everything that happened at Bellator. I saw all the negative articles. You know, so Bjorn is you know really he he has to become a salesman essentially. Well, as far as salesmen are concerned. He is probably the most gifted salesperson I've ever worked with. I mean, his ability to sell is off the charts. It's just tremendous. And he's also probably the smartest person I've encountered in the MMA industry. Bjorn is very good at anticipating things. He's very prepared in his responses. He's not walking into this blindly. He knows that he's going to be met with skepticism and a lot of negativity, and he's already formed his rebuttals. Those rebuttals are already existed. They're already they already exist. They're probably written down on paper somewhere on a yellow legal pad. Um, that's an inside reference. I'm sure, if Anthony Bazooka is listening, he's uh, cracking <laughs> up at that. But you know, I would think that if I had to anticipate what Bjorn's you know response is going to be, it, it it should be twofold. Well, one, it's definitely a certain certainty. The second thing is something that I would recommend, but the the the, the certainty. Uh, as a rebuttal that he he should and probably will make is that hey, I started a organization, an MMA organization that is the longest enduring alternative to the UFC. There are certain people that were unhappy with the way I did business, but the reality is that a lot of people, fighters and MMA personnel, they made a living based on a promotion that I created having made many personal and financial sacrifices to start. I created a platform. I created employment opportunities for fighters and MMA personnel. I put money in their pocket and created a stage, an alternative to the UFC. And many people, including fighters, benefited from that stage. Now, the other aspect of that is, and I'm not sure Bjorn will do that, but, you know, He's a big believer in second chances. I'm a big believer in second chances. He and I were very polar opposite on certain things, but we were very similar in other aspects. And both of us believed in second chances. And I think there's a lot of people in the MMA industry, just by the nature, the inherent nature of, of the sport and certain people that are involved, there's a lot of people that believe in second chances as well. And I think there are a lot of people that might be willing to give Bjorn a second chance. Yeah. The thing I mean, is, though, you, but the you, thing is, though, in order to – forgiven you've got to ask for forgiveness he's got to show some degree of contrition you know he's got to come out and say you know a lot of the things that i did may have been aggressive but i had to be strong for my promotion i had to be strong in order to maintain a legitimate alternative to the ufc and that's kind of a michael corleone another michael corleone uh analogy you know michael corleone did a lot of bad things but he was being strong for his family bjorn was being strong for bellator he was being strong to create and maintain a viable alternative to the UFC. But he also needs to come out and say, yes, there were some things that, looking back, I regret that I should have handled differently. Whether or not he actually does that remains to be seen, but he should do that. He should acknowledge that there were some mistakes made, show some contrition, because people might be willing to forgive, but in order for them to forgive, he's got to ask for forgiveness in the first place. And there are certain people that will, he'll, never, he'll never be able to convert, but there are a lot of people that he might be able to yeah, and by the way, if you are listening to this podcast live on RadioInfluence.com or the Radio Influence TuneIn channel, if you want to send a question or comment in, just tweet them at me, at Jason underscore Floyd, 
at Jason underscore Floyd. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by Fight TV, which is a go-to app for MMA fans and practitioners, live pay-per-views and TV tapings, full-length matches and interviews, movies and documentaries. It's your number one source for MMA, boxing, and pro wrestling video. And, of course, you can watch it live on the screen of your choice, whether it's phone, tablet, or TV, by just using the Fight app. Download Fight Free today by going to fightfite.tv forward slash radio influence forward slash. Sam, I, I do got to mention something. This morning I saw your tweet about being at the gym and you talking <laughs> about people wearing baseball hats. I go to the gym this afternoon, Sam. That's all. I, I walked in and I started looking around. And yes, I saw a couple people wearing baseball hats. That's it, a perfectly good piece of clothing. That And baseball caps aren't cheap these days. And there are certain people, they want to keep sweat out of their face and out of their eyes, and I get that. Wear a sweatband or wear one of those, you know, sleek caps that are designed for workouts. Wearing a perfectly good hat, I don't care. You can put it through the dishwasher, the washing machine, whatever. If it has that sweat, that head sweat, it is always going to smell. Stop wasting your good clothing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so oh, I didn't tell you this, Sam. I, I was at the gym a couple weeks ago and I saw someone actually wearing a UFC fight kit. Was it given to them for free? I, I it was it was a, a female that was wearing it. It was a Ronda Rousey uh, fight kit. I thought about going up to her and just questioning her. Going so should have did should have interviewed her should, should have like, interviewed her and played it played it on this show because that would have been an intriguing interview. Just go, I, you know, I, I I was just saying, why did someone give this to you? Did you go out and buy it? You pay full price? <laughs> are you are you gullible? Like, you know, what else can we talk you into? Yeah, it's uh, interesting, but of course, coming up here very shortly, we are going to be joined by Lucas Millbrook. Very interested to hear his perspective on this entire situation prior. Uh, to uh, hearing from Lucas Millbrook, I am going to play you the audio from Cole Miller. His interview with SureDog.com. If you have not heard this piece of audio, Sam, wow, wow, wow. Holy shit. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it, it is. It's, it, it's, it's, to me, it's really interesting to kind of see how fires are opening up. Well, Cole Miller was uh, on MMA, MMA Twitter this afternoon. By the way, MMA Twitter did not disappoint in response to this press conference uh, that was somehow leaked out live, even though it was supposedly not supposed to be live streamed. But Cole is—he's all in. I mean, I don't—I'm not saying he's all in with the Fighters Association, but he's all in as far as coming out and stating how he feels regards to how he's been treated by the UFC. And you know, Cole's a guy that I, I met several years back. Mike Hobbin uh, used to do an MMA trade association um, get-together, and it was out in Vegas, and as part of the, the, the show out there, Cole Miller and other fighters were doing uh, basically live seminars. And I had a chance to go in with about only seven other people and got to go through a Cole Miller seven, seminar, and it was awesome. Cole was uh, just a, a super awesome guy, you know, just really nice, down to earth, tremendous teacher, taught some amazing technique that day. So, uh, you know, I've always had a, a re strong respect for Cole Miller. He's not a malcontent as far as I know. He's not a jo Joanne Calderwood, someone that, that basically whines and complains over the littlest things. I mean, th this is a guy that has been, from my perspective, a true 
loyal soldier to the UFC. And up until that Sherdog interview, I had never heard anything like that, Cole Miller. So you could just see the frustration. You could see the anger and just how let down, you know, he feels by the UFC. And that, that you know, if you're Ari Emanuel, if you're Dana White and you see that, it might be natural to, to, to react strongly in an angry, aggressive manner and just say, the guy's an ingrate. He's made X amount of dollars with us. What's he complaining about? But if you care about people and you care about your fighters, you still have to make an overture to reach out to him and talk to him, get his perspective. Yeah, you know, you, but you know what? I mean, if, you, if, if you care about fighters, if you've got you to gotta look after guys like that. But if you're not, if Conor McGregor's been requesting this meeting for several months and you're not meeting with Conor McGregor, are you going to meet with Cole Miller? Well, it's I understand where the UFC is probably coming from with regards to that, that aspect. They have over 600 fighters under contract. Ari Emanuel is not just the boss of the UFC. He's got a lot of other fish to uh, fry. I mean, he's got a lot of other irons in the fire. He can't meet with everyone that requests a meeting with him. It's just not possible. But that's why you have people like Dana White and people in your talent relations department that can kind of pick up the slack. And when you do have a fighter like Cole Miller, who should be valued by the UFC, who's been with them for over seven years now. I think his first fight in the UFC was 2007. That's nine, I guess my math sucks. That's, that's nine years, not seven years. You've been around with your company for nine years. You owe it to him to make some time for him. Oh, no, I, I totally I totally agree with that. It was, and, and you'll hear that piece of audio here in a couple minutes. Uh, we got a question here from At Fight Time saying, over under a number that the MMAAA replaces Bjorn with Scott Coker within two years. And, and I know a lot of people are joking about this, but, uh, you know, look, I think Scott's doing, you know, he's doing his thing at Bellator, and he's trying to create a product over there, so I don't see that happening. Well, can we talk about something else, though, that's really important to me and that I think that's, uh, needs to get be, you know, brought up? You made, a, you made this point that the CAA versus IMG WME aspect kind of was underplayed. And to me, that is the crux of this whole launch. That, to me, is really what this is about. It is about a head-to-head war that has been going on for some time now between those two agencies that is just going to get even crazier. And I think that this is a tremendous act of war. Yes, maybe CAA's name is not officially on the banner, but Ari Emanuel is not stupid. He can see the writing on the wall. He can see the affiliation of everyone that is involved with this organization thus far. And, you know, I hope Bjorn Rebney approached this like running for the president of the United States or running for political office where you sit down with your family and you prep them and you tell them, hey, I'm going to be out there publicly. I'm going to be attacked. You're going to be attacked. This is going to get ugly. This is part of the process. Do I have your support? Because Arya Manuel is not someone you want to go to war with. The Fertitas would have made this very ugly. But you're talking about a whole different level now with Arya Manuel at the top of the UFC. There was a tremendous smear campaign against Bjorn, in my perspective, my belief, during the whole Eddie Alvarez situation. I believe that was a lot of pro-Zufa op- operatives working behind the scenes to attack Bjorn and portray him in a certain light. And that was bad. He took some major hits. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as close to what is going to happen to him and people close to him if this association gains traction. It is going to be a war. You are going to see smear campaigns. You are going to see 
gated media that are corrupt and in the pockets of certain organizations that are going to be used as pawns and operatives against one another in this war. And, you know, the analogy that I'm using here, because it's, man, I cannot get away from the CAA aspect of this. They can say that there's no affiliation all they want, but look at who is involved in this early launch. Just look at where that all traces back to. And it kind of reminds me of the Russian invasion invasion of Afghanistan. Was the United States technically at war with Russia uh, during that time? Not necessarily, but we were funding the, the Mujahideen. We were providing weapons to them. We were providing tr- uh, training to them. We were fighting a covert war against Russia. Maybe it wasn't with you know U.S. soldiers and and uh, you know U.S. tanks and U.S. guns, but the dollars were coming from us. The training was coming from us, and that's what I see this. This fighters association, basically a covert attack against IMG and WME. And it looks like that this could be something serious. You know, you could, you know, I'm sure Zufa, you know, laughs at Rob Macy and the MMA FA for having been around so long and not really gaining that much traction. And they're probably having a tremendous laugh now that the PFA is pretty much over and done with in just a couple of months. And, you know, if they're scoffing at Bjorn's involvement, they need to not underestimate him because he will be a formidable foe for them, a tremendous thorn in their side. And if they're not going to make things, if they're not committed to making things ugly just yet, as things progress, he is going to be attacked, and it's going to be tremendous MMA theater to watch these two major media conglomerates that have so many athletes and entertainment and entertainers under their banner go head to head in a massive war. And by the way, uh, Lucas Millbrook and Leslie Smith will be joining us in about 15 minutes from now. Lucas just messaged me here. Uh, he'll be here at 7.40 if you're listening live, 7.45 if you're listening to via podcast uh, here in about 15 minutes. You'll hear from Lucas Middlebrook uh, and Leslie Smith. It, very interested to kind of hear uh, everything that's going on, obviously with the PFA, which uh, I, I think a lot of us were you know, extremely high on. We, we liked what they were doing, and, and now we're seeing what's happening there. That's why I think I, I temper my enthusiasm for uh, the MMAAA. Can we come up with a better analogy, though? Better acronym, you mean? Acronym. Yeah. Can we come up with a better one? I mean, can we, you know, I, 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 I literally, in my head, I have to say, okay, MMA, okay, then two A's. Yeah, they could have come up with something better, right? So it's the MMA, all right, so M- Rob Macy is MMA FA, and this is MMA AA. Yeah, we yeah. So it's ma. <laughs> that's that's what my uh, eight month old daughter. That's what uh, how she refers to my fiance. Ma. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just it's it's such a fascinating time, and I I think Sam two years ago we were, I don't think we you know when we started this podcast two years ago I don't think we. You know, we always talk about, will fighters ever come together? And, and I think that we always thought, hey, it can happen, but I don't know if we realistically ever thought it would happen. And it, it seems like it, it's finally coming together. And with Tim Kenny and Donald Cerrone both being on next week's UFC 206 card, you, you have to imagine that is going to be a major storyline all next week in Toronto. Dave Schaller is probably the happiest man in MMA right now. Or how about Lorenzo and Frank Fertitta? Yeah, you're right. They they take the cake, but Dave Schaller is right underneath them. He he, you know, 
right now he's just dealing with questions about Joel Embiid's uh, minutes restriction. When had he stayed with the UFC, he'd be dealing with a massive hornet's nest right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's kind of sitting back there going, man, you know. And, and look, he has his own headaches he has to deal with. Uh, you know, in any any PR director for any sports organization, there, there's headaches you have to deal with. But, yeah, you know, it's I was I was thinking about that uh, driving around town today, running some errands. I was like, man. Lorenzo and Frank got out at the right time. And, and it That's makes and, pretty, and, pretty gangster. And, and I'm also thinking about this. Is Dana White trying to exit out some way? I don't know. This could actually, I mean, it could work one of two ways. It could uh, make him think that it's time to, to just take his millions and, and walk away. Or if his hatred for Bjorn is so much, this could reinvigorate him. This could make, I mean, you know that at some point he is going to have a tirade and he is just going to go off on Bjorn. <laughs> I think initially he's going to try to ignore it and not mention his name and not acknowledge him. But at a certain point, something's going to really trigger and put him over the edge. And we will get the epic Dana tirades of all tirades against Bjorn. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, got this in from uh, Ryan Sharp, which is at Sharp UFC on Twitter. Says, Love and the Live podcast. Do you think someday HBO will make a TV series about these days in MMA business? Uh, if someone was going to make it, I think HBO would do a fascinating job. I, I was actually uh, earlier today, I watched the entire show, but uh, I now have DirecTV, so I have the Audience Network. I was watching the Kat Singano uh, Religion and Sports uh, show halfway through it. Really good. If anybody's got DirecTV out there, you want to you want to check out that show. It's really well done from the parts I've seen at least. I want to backtrack a little bit and you know when we had talked about the potential of a union or fighters association for mma fighters you and i were pretty much in agreement the biggest obstacle the biggest hurdle was going to be whether or not they could get the biggest names the guys at the top of the food chain the guys making the most money that would have the least amount of motivation to jeopardize their spot or to be involved in a work stoppage or strike and put themselves on the sideline and not involved with getting those big paydays that hurdle basically has been addressed i never thought we would see it like this i mean Tim kennedy gsp kane velasquez tj dillashaw donald cerrone not the biggest names you know that's not john jones it's not conor mcgregor it's not ronda rousey but pretty damn big names the, the kinds of names that two years ago i never would have thought would be attached to this especially I'm not right out of the gate I'm telling you, Sam, the first flight, Bjorn, Tim Kennedy, everyone involved in this new organization should be – you know the first flight they should be getting on, right? Oh. Dublin, Ireland. <laughs> if you could get Conor McGregor on your side, that, that, that puts the UFC in a little uh, – that if there's one fighter the UFC's got to get on their side, it's Conor McGregor. And maybe right now it's the best time to be Conor McGregor. Because now we we both know he has the most leverage of anybody in this sport, and now with this fires association out there and the UFC, you got to think the UFC's got to do just going to do what they can to make Conor McGregor happy. Now, well, they have to bring him into the fold. They have to create some kind of path, some kind of plan, a stock purchase plan for him, where a certain portion of his fight purse will be deducted and go towards the acquisition of equity shares in the UFC and put him in a position where he could maybe over time accumulate three to 5% within the company, because 
with everything that's going on now, with the plans that they have with regards to their upcoming new TV deal that's going to have to be renegotiated prior to 2018 when it's scheduled to end with Fox, the current deal will expire then. And all of these forces outside of the UFC working against them to kind of break their influence and their control and market share of the sport, they need Conor McGregor now more than ever. And Ronda Rousey is not someone they can really rely on, considering that she basically has one foot out the door. You know, a, a bad loss to Amanda Nunez at the end of December, that could be her last fight. You know, there's no guarantee she fights beyond that. She if she does not perform well, I would be surprised if she competes again. Yeah, I, I think Amanda News is going to win that fight. I, I've been on record with that. I think that Amanda's going to win that fight. And I saw the note from uh, Joey Diaz, I guess. Apparently, uh, Ronda doesn't want to talk to Joe Rogan because uh, apparently uh, she's got a, 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 a list of people in MMA she just doesn't like because of the way they talk about her falling UFC 193, which is kind of like, well, what did you expect people to say? You got knocked out. Do you think they were going to, you know, praise you for how you did in the fight? I mean, so that's going to be very interesting to see. But another question: What, what I'd like her for to do, I'd like her to follow the the uh, follow suit of Chris Jericho and actually have a clipboard and bring it with her for every interview. And any time somebody pisses her off, writes, just tell them you're you're on the list now. I want to see her tell Joe Rogan. You're on the list. Yeah, I, I can pretty much imagine that every MMA reporter is probably on that list because we all, you know, had our, you know, it's like I say, when you do a podcast, you're here to give opinions. You know, we're, we're just not here to just tell you the news. We're here to tell you what we think about what's going on. But we got this question uh, from uh, from Joe Daddy 85 saying, all these groups seem like they have similar ideas. What do you think they've shown next to zero interest in all working together? Uh, you know, Sam, the way I would probably say that is, you know, it's kind of like anytime someone starts their own organization, they want to be the head honcho. Yeah, you can't have three lead singers. I think Rob Macy, Jeff Boris, and Bjorn Rebney, they all want to be the lead singer of the band. You can't have three lead singers unless you're the Eagles. Uh, and this is not a super group. So it would take someone being willing to put their ego aside and just serve in a supportive role. And I don't think that's what Jeff Boris, Bjorn Rebney, or Rob Macy have have it, uh, in mind. Yeah, I, I don't think they have in mind either. But uh, it, it makes you wonder now with with Lucas out of PFA. You know what's what is a PFA going to be around three months from now? If you read Jeff Boris's response, you know this is only a minor speed bump, and I say that sarcastically. But that's what he referred to the departures of Leslie and Lucas in a recent you know interview. And I think that's a joke. That comment's a joke. You know, if you present yourself as a fighter advocate, someone that is going to stand for the fighters and and you're trying to earn their trust, the accusations that have been levied against them, they're, they're catastrophic. Yeah. It's just that PFA it's, 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 you know, Jeff Boris can say whatever he wants to me in all effect, all effect, it is dead. Uh, by the way, Sam, there's been some ridiculous things that have happened over the past couple of days in MMA. First off, Kelvin Gastelum, a $2,000 <laughs> fine for not showing up to the weigh-ins, was heavily overweight. And, uh, Sam, I don't know if you're like me, and, and maybe you see things different from being on the promotion side, but part of me feels a little uncomfortable with Kelvin Gastelum fighting 30 days, you know, 35 days after his whole issues at UFC 205. First off, he never should have been suspended by the New York State Athletic Commission in the first place. However, 
the New York State Athletic Commission is a legitimate sanctioned body. It, it is part of the ABC. And my experience has been if you were under suspension by an ABC sanctioned commission, that all the other ABC sanctioned commissions, whether they agreed with the suspension or not, still honored it. And for it's, you know, a suspension is a suspension. And for it to just be completely swept under the rug is so mind boggling and transparent and really exposes Zufa's influence. Oh, I can't say Zufa. It's not Zufa anymore. What's wrong with me? No, there's still Zufa. No, I think there's still Zufa. I don't, really? I think they just, you know, they're, they're still known as Zufa. I, I'll have to check the next time I watch a UFC broadcast, but I'm pretty sure at the end it still says Zufa. It's, but it's corrupt. Whatever it is, it is corrupt because I always had an uneasy feeling, especially when I was working for Bellator, how much influence the UFC had on these commissions. Because the reality is that in a lot of situations, the newer commissions, they allowed the UFC to come in and essentially write the rules. There are a lot of these regulations, the regs that are on the books for a lot of these athletic commissions, UFC had, you know, basically editorial privilege. They, they reviewed them and made suggestions and, a lot of the athletic commissions consulted with them. I remember when PA was legalizing MMA, Greg Serb had a a, uh, a public meeting at the uh, 2300 Arena, the former ECW Arena, and I attended that meeting, and he was very open about having consulted with the Fertitas in getting the regulations uh, written for the legislation to pass in the state of Pennsylvania. And that's the kind of influence the UFC has. You know, New York said, he, he, uh, Kelsen, Kelvin Gastelum, you're suspended. UFC didn't like that. They needed him for a big show. Everyone wrote, hey, they, you can't do this. It's not going to happen. Sure enough, it happened. You know, so, uh, checks had to have been written. Had to have been written. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things, and I just – one of my questions about Kevin Gossman, I think this will end up coming out next week, is when his team made the decision that, you know what, you're done cutting weight, we're, we're not going – this fight's not going to happen – one of the things that I wonder is, did he seek any medical attention after the event was over? And was the commission aware of that? And did that have anything to do with why they handed him the suspension that they handed him at that time? My understanding was more punitive than anything else. Had this happened at the Mohegan Sun with Mike Mazzoli, it would have been more of a medical issue, and he would have been suspended and had to probably go pass some, some medical tests. Which is why I, you know, goes back to me thinking that he never should have been suspended for that long in the first place. It, it, it was purely punitive. You know, if anything, and I've suggested this in the past, you should suspend a fighter from competing. If they miss weight in a weight class, suspend them from competing in that weight class. Don't suspend them altogether. They still have a need to fight and make a living. There's, there's no way they can let Kelvin. The UFC cannot book Kelvin Gassel in another welterweight matchup. Oh, they said they won't, and they will not. But the issue is, you know, what conversations took place between, you know, Ken, Ken Hayashi and the UFC? I mean, what, you know, I would have loved to have a wiretap on those conversations. How did those conversations go down? And what did the UFC say to have a, one ABC commission completely overlook and ignore suspension from another commission. And I think not only did, did you know, Ontario clear the way for, for Kelvin Gastelum to compete on the show, but I think New York just stripped it all together. 
mean, I don't. I think that if I'm not mistaken, Jason, I think the suspension is completely forgotten about now. He's paying yeah, a fine. Yeah, he's paying a fine in lieu of a suspension, and that was never when this suspension was first levied. That was never an option. It wasn't. Oh, you're suspended for X amount of months, or you can pay a fine. It was just you're suspended. Yeah. And no. Now all of a sudden we hear. That, you know, he can pay a fine in lieu of the suspension, which is a joke. Yeah, it's a $2,000 fine, and, uh, you know, he'll now fight Tim Kennedy, and we'll see what's going to happen uh, next with him. Also, uh, I, th- I think it's a complete joke that Max Holloway and Anthony Pettis are fighting for an interim title. Uh, you Jason, know, remember, I made a joke. That fight was made. I said they should fight for the interim interim title, and that's essentially what's happening. Yeah, it, it's crazy. But, Sam, we're going to be joined here by Lucas Millbrook in a, in a couple of minutes. So uh, while we get Lucas here on the podcast, going to let you hear from Cole Miller, his comments to SureDog.com earlier this week where, yeah, they were, his relationship with the UFC just is not very good at this time. Talk about the training camp for this fight. You had a fight fallout. You've been here and. South Florida for for a bit now. This is not where you live anymore. How's it been being away from the family? I mean, this is a different experience for you. This is a, a different time in your life. Uh, it's crap. You know, I come in here. I did a training, a full training camp, nine weeks. Uh, was away from my family, and then uh, was on the way to the airport. Um, you know, that's when the hurricanes were going on down here. So I called ahead myself, transferred my flight to go out of Atlanta instead of down here in Fort Lauderdale to make sure that I made my flight that i wouldn't miss my fight was uh drove all night got into georgia like four in the morning woke up at eight in the morning was on the way to the airport when i got a text saying that the uh you know the whole event was canceled i was like ah that sucks you know and then um got less than a third of my show money um so i came out of the training camp i think so nine weeks away from my family i think i profited four or five hundred dollars so that worked out pretty good for me, you know. And then uh, instead of getting rebooked two weeks later, I get rebooked two months later. So I have to come to a, another second training camp to get paid for one. So that's what it feels like. I'm here. I don't even want to be here right now. I don't. It doesn't make me want to fight harder for my family. It makes me want to fight less. It makes me want to quit. Go get a job at Starbucks or something. Tenth year in the UFC, counting the Ultimate Fighter fights. Where do you see your career right now? Do you feel like you're hitting that tail end are you looking into post fight life like what's your plan uh well going into that last camp for the philippine fights i was like i'm ready to start taking out these contenders i got 10 12 more fights in me i'm ready to fight through you know 36 years old now i don't even want to do it i don't want to do this training camp wow so it's it's the things outside i want to do this session straight up don't want to be here how do you mentally get past this? Is this is this gonna you gonna take this into the fight with you? I mean, are you looking? Are you walking into this fight saying I don't care either way? This might just be my last one. I don't. We'll we'll find out when I get to the fight. But right now, I'm just like anybody else who going to work on a Monday. They don't want to. I'll just punch the clock. That's all I'm here doing right now. Looking positively at this fight, you're able to get a finish, not take any kind of damage. Are you gonna push for a quick turnaround just because of the way it's been, or? The idea of jumping right into another camp just does not interest you. I don't know. I don't know. They'd have to really. This is my last fight on my contract, so um, to renegotiate a new contract, there's a lot of work that's got to be done. You know what? I don't even really think they want me fighting for them. You know, just by the way that I feel like I've been treated, it's like that's not how you take care of your people. You know, so they'll probably let me go even if I win. Which, whatever. 
What do you attribute that to? Have you ever had a talk with any of the, the new owners? Do you feel like, have you noticed kind of a, a disconnect from the old ownership? Yeah, I kind of I kind of been feeling it for a little bit now, and then I, I asked to go in. Um, I requested a meeting not that long ago uh, to go in and meet them in person, and I was it, I was denied. They wouldn't even see me. Well, I, I, I imagine that's just one of many things that have kind of contributed to this mindset for you. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, that's just a you know icing on top of it. So don't fear. If, if you were to get a a good offer from, say, like a, a Bellator or another promotion out there, would you still be interested in fighting? I don't know. Don't know. Welcome back to the MMA Insiders Podcast right here on Radio Influence as we wait. Lucas Millbrook and Leslie Smith to call in to talk about what is going on. Uh, you know, Sam, one of the things that uh, while we wait for them to call in, we have to mention is this uh, everyone knew that the major play about the UFC selling for $4.2 billion was due to the amount of money that WME paid was for the television rights, and they're seeking $450 million a year. Sam, I, I think it's wonderful they're trying to get it. I don't see how they get that kind of money. The initial reports were that they would seek somewhere in the neighborhood between 200 to $350 million. Now the latest reports about the investor documents that were circulated, all of a sudden it's at $450 million. And that, to me, sounds... Insane. I'm not saying Ari Emanuel doesn't have the chops, the acumen to pull something like that off. But in order to represent that type of value to the networks, television providers, you're basically going to have to kill the vast majority of your pay-per-view business. You're going to have to provide some massive lineups, promises of many title fights in order to even come close to garnering that type of amount from the networks. And maybe it's just posturing. You know, if, if you go to a job, you get a job offer, and you talk salary, and you want to make $70,000 a year, you don't ask for $70,000 a year. You ask for ninety to 100000 in hopes that you get an offer of seventy instead of an offer of fifty. So maybe it's negotiation, posturing. It's a tactic to try to raise the you know, the actual value that they'll get to closer to 300 to 350 million. But I don't see, you know, I mean, I just don't see it. I don't see the value of the UFC's ratings, you know, even with regard to, and the acknowledgement that networks are desperate for live DVR proof programming. I just don't see the UFC having a big enough audience right now to warrant $450 million a year. Yeah, I I don't uh, I don't see that. I, I I just you know the only way, and I was talking to somebody about this earlier today is I I can only see is if you were if that network that was willing to pay potentially four hundred fifty million dollars a year would sit there and was ready to get part of the pay per view. Then I think that number somewhat maybe becomes a little bit more interesting. But I, I just for me as someone in the media, and when you look at the you know people will look at for instance. Uh, you know, television rights for, for the major sports. But when you look at the amount of subscribers that ESPN is losing, because, look, your, your bidders would be ESPN, Fox, and Turner. And I don't see ESPN shelling out that kind of money for the UFC. I know they want the UFC, but how bad do they want the UFC? I think Turner is the real wild card. Having Turner involved could drive the negotiation request up. I mean, that's 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 a big 
get to have them involved in this, having three to four viable suitors as opposed to just two, things could get crazy and, and the bidding could, could, could go up. But again, it all goes back to how much is the UFC worth for $450 million a year over the course of 10 years. Forget about just having a piece of the pay-per-view, Jason. If I'm paying that out, I want a piece of the company, too. Oh, no, I agree. I, I absolutely agree with you there. You know, it, it'll be interesting to see what the end amount is. You know, when the WWE's contract ran up and they were renegotiating with, you know, USA, speculation was that they were going to be able to triple what they were currently getting at the time from USA. And that's not what happened at all. And Vince McMahon has come back and, and said that the, the advent of the WWE network is to blame for, for a lot of that. I would say it's partially to blame. I just don't think that they were anywhere near is worth as much as they want, as they believed. And I think that because they were a publicly traded company and they floated those expectations to a lot of investors, they actually ended up getting sued by their investors. Now, the UFC is not a publicly uh, traded company. But they, they are protected somewhat. But this is an investor document that was circulated. If Ari Emanuel comes up way short of $450 million annually and somebody invested on the pretense of that, are they going to be open up to – is the UFC going to have to face lawsuits? And we are going to be joined here by Lucas Middlebrook here in a moment uh, to get his thoughts on what is going on there um, in terms of, you know, what's his exit from the PFA. And I believe, Lucas, are you there, man? Now, Sam Kaplan, are you there? I am here. We just want to remind everyone this is a live broadcast, uh, depending on when you're listening to it, but – it was taped live, so if we do have some uh, technical issues, that's part of the uh, deal when we go live. Yes, uh, trying to uh, get to uh, connect here. We do it. This is this is live uh, podcasting. Sometimes it's you know we are we are a one man show here. It is it's not uh, always out there. So, but uh, you know, Sam, you you were talking about that the television deal, and um, you know, you look at everything that's going on there in terms of. Um, what's happening with ESPN and just cable rights in general, to me it's going to be very tough for the UFC to get that number they want. It's going to be tough for them to get the number that they want, but it's obviously going to be a big increase over what they're currently getting. One question I do have is, you know, is ESPN, Fox, uh, Turner, NBC is also rumored. Are they interested in just the UFC? Are they interested in a big MMA property? Because the, there's going to be multiple parties that lose out on the UFC and don't get the rights. Would they be open to another promotion? Or is their interest all tied into the UFC? Because if you're Viacom and you hear that, say, Turner is interested and they're willing to pay six, you know, $100 million a year, does that change your strategy with Bellator? Yeah, I don't know, Sam. I don't know. As I'm trying to get uh, Lucas here on the phone here, Sam. Another interesting thing that I noticed on MMA Twitter, because like I said, MMA Twitter did not let me down today, was a tweet by Mike Russell alleging that Bjorn Rebney at one point made a play to buy the World Series of Fighting. I thought that was very interesting, and John Nash followed that up with an implication that Bjorn at one point was talking to another promotion about an acquisition. And Sam, I believe we have Lucas Millbrook now online. Lucas, you there? Awesome. I am here, yes. 
Lucas, uh, I appreciate the time. Obviously, a uh, little, little technical difficulties, but we got you in on there. I, I appreciate you taking some time out. First off, uh, the one thing I really wanted to hear from you, and we'll get into what's going on with you, but Bjorn Revenue on today's conference call talked about how it had to be an association, not a union. Do you agree with what he said? Uh, you know, I didn't hear it in context, and so I'm not, I, don't, I don't fully understand why he made that comment. Uh, I, I guess I would have some concerns as to why that's the route they feel it is, it's appropriate to take. Uh, I did see some comments uh, on, on the Internet that they mentioned the possibility of a work stoppage of a strike. And what raised red flags to me immediately with that, if you're an association and you're not a certified bargaining representative or voluntarily recognized by the employer under the auspices of the NLRA, and you engage in a work stoppage or withhold services, then then you can actually be sued and be found liable under, under the Sherman Antitrust Act. And, and that's case law that goes back decades. Uh, to to the longshoremen before they were certified by the National Labor Relations Board. So that's actually one of the main benefits of becoming a certified bargaining agent is that you are then subject to the non-statutory labor exemption from the Sherman Antitrust Act. So a lot of no one, a lot of people don't realize that that's a two-way street. People think Sherman Antitrust. They think that you, normally you're suing the employer or like the NFL players did when they decertified, they they sued the NFL. But it, it can go both ways. If an association withholds services and they're not the certified bargaining representative, they can be held liable under that statute as well. So that that raised some red flags. And then the other thing that raised the red flag was I did I did hear them mention uh, the concept of a collective bargaining agreement, but I don't see how legally that meshes with uh, not being a certified union because there's if you're not the certified bargaining representative. There's there's no nothing there's no legal obligation causing the UFC to even sit down at that bargaining table with you. There, there's nothing. Uh, they really could t- tell you to pound sand uh, in terms of a legal obligation. Uh, if you're certified under the National Labor Relations Act, not only do they have to meet with you, they have to bargain in good faith. Lucas, I'm uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I know sorry. Leslie is trying to call. Leslie is trying to call in. Um, because we had some te- technical difficulties, but uh, I'm sure you can figure that out. Lucas, Sam Kaplan here. Wanted to thank you for joining us yet again on today's show and doing it on short notice. Can you talk to us about a difference between a work stoppage and a strike, if there is any difference? There really isn't a difference. Uh, it's just it's just two ways to call something the same thing. When you're withholding services, uh, it, it is a, it is a strike if it's initiated by the employees. Obviously, we all know that if it's initiated by the employer, it's referred to as a lockout. Uh, like I like I just mentioned, if if you engage in what's determined to be a concerted effort to withhold your services, that that's going to be a strike. And if you're not the certified bargaining representative, then you're opening yourself or the association up to a lawsuit under the Sherman Antitrust Act. What about a situation as it applies to both Brendan Schaub and for a while Tim Kennedy, where they both said that they weren't retired, but they weren't going to accept fights anymore under their current contract and had no interest in fighting? Because at the end of the day, you can't force a human being to get into a cage and fight. What if there was a epidemic, so to speak, of top fighters 
simply saying, I'm not accepting fights right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and that would then boil down to, uh, are, are these one-offs, are these individualized decisions, or is this a, concert, is this a concerted action? Uh, and and if, the, if the UFC filed suit under the Sherman Antitrust Act that there was collusion and this was a concerted action, um, then, then they would have to, and that they filed suit, then you'd get into discovery. And you, you would start then looking into emails, text messages to see whether uh, there was uh, you know, action or a de- decision amongst the groups of fighters to withhold their services collectively. Uh, you know, you, you, you see that in other arenas in the labor industry where, where, where maybe it's an unlawful work action and you, you're, the employer sues and they're trying to determine whether it was collective action. And, and in today's society, with electronic discovery and text messages and emails, uh, you know, it's, it, those things tend to always come to fruition or come to light once you, once you get into that discovery process of, of litigation. You know, Lucas, obviously you, you became a news story this week with, with the PFA. First off, uh, give your side of the story. Yeah, my side of the story is, is that uh, uh, there, there was an unfortunate release of, of information, which was uh, I had been advocating strongly, and, and Leslie also was, was pushing for uh, the PFA to establish an interim executive board composed purely of fighters. And, and I felt this was necessary, given my experience with other union organizing drives, that y- you have to have the people who are going to be affected by a potential collective bargaining agreement as the ones in power and the ones making the decisions. Uh, and so I wanted to get that implemented as soon as possible for a couple reasons. One, to establish a constitution and bylaws, which is actually, if you're going to be a labor organization, is required under the Department of Labor regulations. But, but more importantly... The Constitution bylaws is the union governance document, so it's going to set out who makes the decisions, what those decisions consist of, uh, how you get elected. Uh, and so I wanted to get that in place because I, I, wanted, I wanted to show other fighters who were not involved that, that this wasn't an agent running the show. This wasn't a labor lawyer running the show. This was actually a union of fighters, fighters making decisions, and, and fighters leading the union. So that was a crucial step. And then, unfortunately... Leslie put a lot of work and time into reaching out to other fighters who who showed interest, but they weren't ready to commit fully uh, until they had done their due diligence. And so when those names were released and it ended up on an MMA news media, that that really was a major setback. Uh, And understandably, Leslie was upset because he put her name out there and her reputation with these other fighters. Uh, And so when when the PFA lost, which I consider to be the number one fighter proponent from the beginning, which was which was Leslie, uh, I, I just didn't feel that I could be associated with the entity uh, any longer. I felt like I felt like the paths were different uh, in terms of my vision and and Jeff's vision, as he was focusing also on creating an uh, an agent, a, a board of agents, which is proven in the sports world to be very helpful to established unions. I just felt like it may have been a premature step given given where we were in the organizing stage. Leslie accused Jeff of being the source of that leak, uh, and Jeff has denied being the source of that leak. To the best of your knowledge, would anyone else have, access, have had access to those materials and that information besides you, Leslie, or Jeff? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, I bet, you know, I, I don't, I don't think anyone besides potentially administrative staff uh, that was working with the PSA uh, would have had access to that information. I, 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 to this day, I don't know where the leak came from. Uh, I, I, I don't know if, if the information was shared with this advisory board of agents and, and maybe someone within that group was the cause of the leak. I just don't know that. I mean, I, I was, I was purely focused on establishing an interim executive board of fighters. I had worked really more closely with Leslie than I had with Jeff, uh, you know, at, let's say after September. Uh, and so, you know, with that said, I, I don't know where it came from, but there was a limited number of people who had access to the information. And, you know, now as you move forward, what what is next for you? What's next for me is that is that I, I have I have offered uh, Leslie my assistance and, and my experience in terms of labor law and organizing if Leslie feels that she wants to push forward with a union, a strict union concept. I told her that I will assist her with that any way I can. Uh, and, you know, aside, aside from that, uh, in terms of me, I, I continue on with, with, uh, with my profession. I, I mean, I represent a number, number of labor unions um, already, and, and that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. And, and really up to this point and continuing on, the, the work I've done in this arena has all been on my own time. Uh, but I've pledged to Leslie that that I'll assist any way that I can because as working with her, I've been extremely impressed with with her determination and her passion for this, uh, and and with her character as well. And 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 she's really what I've experienced in other union organizing drives is they succeed when it's built on a grassroots effort, when it's not outsiders pushing for it, but it's the people that are going to be affected who who are the ones that put in the time and then at the beginning it's a lot of time and it's a lot of thankless time it's a lot of unpaid time but uh you have to do that to get the ball rolling and, and not to mention that there's also legalities involved with it under the labor management reporting and disclosure act in terms of labor organizations in this country there, there's restrictions on where money can come from and where it can't come from so a lot of these, unless you're a, a an organization that's already solidified. So let's say the Teamsters wanted to come in and organize these fighters. Well, the Teamsters International obviously has money. They could spend money on the organizing drive. But you have restrictions when you have other uh, other entities besides labor organizations putting money into a union organizing drive. And if the de- Department of Labor ever investigated that, they're going to follow the money trail. Uh, so... A lot of times it has to be a grassroots effort. And, by the way, speaking of Leslie Smith, she is now here on the MMA Insiders Podcast. Leslie, how are you doing? I'm awesome. Glad to be here. I appreciate you coming out here. Obviously, uh, we've got Lucas and also Sam Kaplan here. Uh, you, you made the news with your open letter earlier this week where you had said that uh, you, you are no longer uh, a part of the PFA, and I know that you were tweeting during uh, the conference call for the MMA AA. Uh, you know, first off, uh, you know, Lucas has talked a little bit about the, the falling out with the PFA, but kind of summarize for all of our listeners uh, the main points on exactly why you realized that this was not the association to, or union to be involved with. Sure. Well, I think that the problem was that um, the 
the vision was being led by Jeff and by Jeff Boris, and that Jeff Boris's ideas weren't um, weren't consistent with what I was thinking or or with what Lucas was thinking. I think that everything would have been completely different if uh, if Lucas had been in charge um, and uh, been running everything um, and been the main voice for it. But uh, the main thing that caused the issue and the reason that I had to step away from the PFA was because um, a list of fighters who who we were interested in, I made a list of people who I thought would be great people to be on a board. Um, and that list was released. And when I asked why or how that list got out, uh, Jeff said that he had created a board of agents that he had not told, um, that he hadn't told me about. And that he'd been giving them all the information and and that that must be where the leak came through. So uh, my my issues with with Jeff were um, a lack of transparency and his interpretation of the word confidential. Um, it, it's the fighter's interests are the most important thing. That's the whole point of a union. And so to see the, the fighter's interests not take precedence in the very first place meant that I needed to walk away. Leslie, Sam Kaplan here. Thank you for joining us tonight. Wanted to ask you with regards to the fighters whose names were leaked. Did you hear from any of them? Uh, So some of those fighters said, yes, they were all about it. Some of them only agreed to a conversation and some of them we had never even contacted. As far as once their names were leaked, did you have to address any text messages or phone calls from them? Um, I, I did talk to a couple of people. Uh, no, I didn't get a whole bunch of stuff. I, I was glad that the article didn't get tons of publication um, or tons of notice. And I was kind of hoping I, I was hoping that it wouldn't get a lot of notice, but if I had been one of those fighters, then I probably would have decided that I didn't want to talk to me at all anymore at all because I had promised confidentiality to them. And, um, and when someone breaks that kind of trust, that makes you not, it makes me not want to talk to them anymore. One of the things that came out, and particularly during this conference call today, and, and Donald Cerrone was really the, the big uh, person talking about this, was that fear of coming forward. You're a current UFC fighter. Cajun Johnson, also a current UFC fighter. He's been very vocal. You've got a fight coming up. Have you felt any of that fear of, of how vocal you have been, and, and do you feel like it maybe it's hurt you at all? I do not feel that it has hurt me at all. I have actually only benefited since I've started talking about the need for fighters to come together and form a union or, or an association. I still think that a union, a fighter-led union, is the best way to go. Um, any group of fighters coming together, though, I believe in the unified front, and, and I want to support whatever vehicle is going to bring as many fighters out from behind wherever they're at to, to stand up and, and unify their voices. Um, but no, I, I haven't had anything bad happen. From the beginning, I did a video with MMAFA, and I talked about a tumor on my stomach, 
that I wasn't able to get taken care of through the UFC's medical insurance. And just a couple days later, the UFC called me and said, is there anything that we can do for you? And, and within a week, the tumor was off of my stomach. I actually had another surgery on my wrist that they could have possibly decided that they didn't want to take care of, but they, they did it with alacrity. And I haven't had any kind of repercussions. As far as fear goes, yes, I have had paralyzing fear almost every time that I uh, made decisions to speak up and say something. And there would be times where my finger would be hovering over a share button or a tweet button, and I would start wondering if this is going to be the end of my career, if this is the worst decision I could make, what kind of possibilities that I don't even realize I'm cutting myself out of. The fear is real. The repercussions have not been. Leslie, I want to echo some of Jason's sentiments and you know, say you are tremendously courageous for stepping out, coming out in the public, and attaching your name to the forefront of these pro-fighter labor initiatives. Wanted to also ask, you know, you mentioned that you feel the union is the best way to go. However, you know, wanted to get your initial impressions of the conference call with the MMA Athletes Association, uh, as well as, you know, what would happen if a call from Bjord Remdy or one of the fighters on that board uh, contacted you? What, what, you know, would you take that call? And, you know, what, what would you, what would you ask? I would definitely take that call. I even tweeted that they should have a female on the board and hashtagged it with, yes, I'm talking about me. Um, I, I want to be a part. I feel like I've been learning a whole lot. I've gotten to have so many wonderful conversations with Lucas Middlebrook um, and, and I feel like I've learned a lot about this subject. And I feel like one of the reasons I've learned a whole lot is because I've had so many naysayers that I've, I've had to come back from conversations where people were saying, well, it's not going to work for this, 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 and this reason. And then been able to call Lucas and say, is this, is this true? And, and then he, he has so much knowledge in the areas and he's so generous with his time in this department that he has uh, he's answered a lot of questions for me. So I would love to be part of any effort. I thought it was really interesting how the group, by the way, does anybody else want to call it Ma? We already, we actually already touched on that. I, I made the joke, I have an eighth-month-old daughter, and that's how she refers to my fiancé as Ma. <laughs> okay, cool. Same page. We're on the same page. Um, <laughs> Let me ask Leslie and, and Lucas, you can chime in on this as well. And we were talking about this a little earlier. You know, obviously a lot of people are looking at Bjorn Rebney. What are his intentions? What What is his uh, – it was very clear in this conference call that he's not a board member. He doesn't have a vote. But because of the way people feel about Bjorn in this industry, does that put your guard up on terms of what that association is trying to do? That's a question for Lucas, right? Uh, either one of you. I'd love to get both of your thoughts on that. I'll let Lucas go first. Actually, Leslie, I was going to defer to you. I mean, I don't really have an opinion of, of him one way or the other. I, I, I've made no uh, – I haven't kept it a secret that, that really prior to representing Nick in his case, I wasn't heavily involved in the MMA world. So uh, 
uh, I, I have a limited knowledge of uh, of his history, uh, so I actually would defer to Leslie on on that question. To be honest with you, all right, totally. I can I can do that. Well, I can tell you that there's already memes that are being made that show the logo for yeah. for Ma with uh, with Bjorn um, his face attached <laughs> to a snake. Yeah, you guys have seen that one already. Yeah, yes, Jason and I actually talked about that uh, off air. Right oh my show. gosh. Oh, my goodness. All right. So I've already seen that. Um, I've seen fighters like King Mo uh, on Instagram talking about how he is a snake. I've seen a lot of people who have already dealt with him through their Bellator experiences talking about how he is not not the most stand-up guy. I don't have any personal experiences with him, but I, I – I tend to believe fighters who've been in those experiences already. Like, there's not a lot of reasons for fighters to run around and say they got screwed by someone who, who treated them well. So I, I don't know what his motives are. I don't know what he's going for. I, I know that a lot of the people are part of CAA, which is, which is said to be in some kind of a battle with the WMEIMG, and I know that... Uh, a union, um, it shouldn't only include the UFC. It makes the most sense for it to include Bellator as well because they have television rights and there's a lot of money in Viacom. And if you let go from Viacom, there, there's a lot of possibility for, for motives, extra motives. However, I still think that it's a wonderful thing, whatever he did, whatever he said to those fighters to get them to go up and stand up and say, hey, we're coming together and we're unifying and the fighters of that caliber, I think it's a great thing. Lucas, I want to repeat a question that I addressed to Leslie. If you received a call from Bjorn or Jim Quinn or some of the fighters that have been announced as being part of the initial board, would you take that call? Absolutely. There's no question. I take, I'm I'm always willing to listen to anybody or anything. Uh, I actually, I, I flew out to Las Vegas uh, in September and, and sat down with Rob Macy from the MMAFA uh, to try to, uh, I guess for lack of better terminology, smooth things over between PFA and MMAFA. I'm always willing to sit down and listen and, and provide my thoughts on, on where it's going or where they may be going. So, yeah, there's no question. I, I would take the call. I would listen uh, and provide any insight uh, I, that they'd be willing to uh, Listen to me. And then if I could just uh, step back, you had asked Leslie about repercussions and whether she was fearful. And that's another thing that, that kind of raised a thought for me was if you're proceeding initially as a trade association and your desire is not, not to unionize, then there, there is an argument that could be made that you are not protected by Section 8A3 of the National Labor Relations Act, which which is the section within the NLRA which protects union organizers or individuals who wish to be represented by a union or are currently represented by a union from, from discrimination by a potential employer or their employer. And even if you're not a current union member, let's say, for instance, Leslie Smith, if she feels that 
that she has been discriminated against by the UFC because of her advocacy on behalf of unions, she has the right to file a, uh, an 8A3 charge with the National Labor Relations Board. It's a one-page document, and when she files that charge, the NLRB then acts as a prosecutor and actually takes the case on themselves uh, and goes forward. So there, there's a question in my mind, if you've made a public statement that you're not seeking to unionize, but rather be a trade association, you may have now lost those protections under Section 883 of the NLRA, which is a very, very powerful tool in terms of union organizing. And Lucas, you mentioned one of the other drawbacks as far as not going the union route is that you can't formally have a CBA. There can't be collective bargaining. Would it be possible, though, for a trade association, a fighters association, to furnish a fighter bill of rights that would be presented to management and ownership of a major fight organization? Is that something that would be legal, and would it have any teeth? Well, they could certainly uh, they could certainly propose something uh, uh, of that um, of that matter, and and the UFC could voluntarily be a signatory to that contract, so to speak. But but then essentially what you're left with is is depending on the contract's terms, you're left with enforcing that in state court uh, if there's a breach of the contract, and and unfortunately. What you're also what you also lose out on is is all these triggers uh, under the National Labor Relations Act when you sit down to bargain and, and I've told this to a number of fighters that that there's this term of art under the NLRA called bargaining in good faith and it's not just it's not just a catchphrase it's a very legal term of art so there's a number of things when you sit down at a collective bargaining table. It's more of a legal process than it is a bargaining process. It's not like bargaining for your mortgage or to buy a new car. There's a lot of things that an employer is not allowed to do in that process. So just for example, uh, they're not allowed to say, we're too busy to meet with you on, on these dates. That's called the busy negotiator defense. That's a violation of Section 885 of the National Labor Relations Act. It's considered bad faith bargaining. And once an employer does that, you can now file a charge with the National Labor Relations Board, uh, and they will then prosecute that charge. So you have oh, – let me step back. There's also another instance where you can request information from the employer that is relevant to the bargaining process. And under the NLRA, it's presumed to be relevant, it's presumptively relevant if it's attached to the bargaining process. So typically what you do – not to give away all my secrets here, but typically what you do is – you request the world and back of the information from the employer. And when they tell you no, now you're starting to build a case for a bad faith bargaining charge. And these are all ways to exert outside forms of leverage over the employer as part of that collective bargaining process. Because typically a union, especially a startup union, they don't have a lot of leverage. So you have to start pulling leverage under the NLRA in order to create that process where the parties get closer and closer and then you get within spitting distance. All of a sudden you find yourself having those sessions where you're up till midnight, two, three in the morning. That's when you know you're close to a CBA. If you're not under the NLRA, you don't have those tools. You don't have those weapons, unfortunately. Uh, one thing I, I did want to mention, uh, and this is more goes to Leslie. One of the things that kept getting brought up in this conference call was health insurance. For you as a fighter, are you even able to go out and find an insurance company that will actually cover you? Well, I've never tried. 
I, I, I'm definitely doing the gambling thing and, and hoping that everything that happens to me will be covered underneath the liability. I've never, I've never even shopped for insurance. I'm 34 years old and I've been fighting for 10 years now. And I, I can't even answer that question because I've never had the income in order to afford that and consider that an option. Um, I kind of want to go back to what you guys were talking about with the union versus versus the association. I thought it was really interesting how how at the end of the conversation, at, did you guys so the whole conference call at the end of it, there is one guy who was asking how they were going to do these things for the ex fighters that they were talking about, like yeah. um, giving them back pay and stuff like that if they didn't have the the federal backing that a union has. And then they actually said that that is something that they're going to do eventually in the future is unionize and then utilize the options of uh, decertifying and then recertifying if they need to. So I thought it was an interesting thing how they seem to be avoiding the anti-union rhetoric, but still claiming all the stuff that they're going to do as if they had the abilities of a union and then saying that, well, eventually they will have to do that. Lucas, I had another question for you. They, you know, Bjorn and the fighters denied a direct correlation to CAA. If they weren't being honest and a smoking gun were to arise down the line, what type of liability would CAA and Bjorn and other parties involved with the MMA, uh, AA, what, I mean, what, what would they be looking at possibly? In terms of liability, that's that's a tough question. But what I what I can tell you is that, and I think I mentioned this earlier, is that there are very strict regulations on labor organizations in the United States under the labor we we call it the LMRDA, the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act. And there's very strict regulations on where money can come from to fund a labor organization, uh, or or if a labor organization is up and running, where their funds can come from. So I mentioned that earlier when, when you have industrialized unions who have coffers like the Teamsters or the Transport Workers Union, uh, th- then they can fund their own organizing drives, and that's typically how it's done. When you have startup unions that are independent unions, not affiliated with a larger AFL-CIO union, th- that money has to come from grassroots efforts because th- they're – it, it, it can't be fed by outside entities that aren't affiliated with the labor organization. And, and, and what's troubling is all it takes is a complaint to the Department of Labor to, to spur an investigation by the Department of Labor into, into the potential anomalies of if, if a union is funded correctly. And like I said, they're going to follow a paper trail. They're going to follow a money trail if, if that investigation is, is set forth. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not I'm not casting aspersions on anything, and and I do wanna I do wanna say that I'm not I'm certainly not anti this new association. In fact, I think it's wonderful. I think the fact that you have a number of well-known fighters willing to stick their neck out is spectacular, and 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 I, I just I just want them. I'm just hopeful that they're doing it the right way. And they're getting most protection that they need under the law or the protection that's available under the law in terms of the National Labor Relations Act. It's, it's a very powerful weapon if you understand it. It's, an, it's a law that's been around since, since uh, the 40s. Uh, and, 
And it, it, it's very useful to unions and union organizers if you understand all the intricacies. And uh, so I just, I just hope that they haven't overlooked that or, or, or passed it aside uh, initially. But yeah, there are very strict regulations on where the money can come from in this country for, for a bargaining representative. And Leslie and Lucas, wanted to thank you both again for coming on and, and speaking with us tonight. It's been a truly educational experience. I do have one last question for Leslie. Jeff Boris and the PFA, they mentioned a basement fighter starting point, a fighter minimum in the UFC as 25 and 25. I didn't hear it from Bjorn's mouth, but I saw it reported that, there, you know, uh, the new association could be looking for a minimum of 125,000, which sounds a little on the high side to me. And I'm not sure if it was actually said, but it was reported that way. What do you feel like personally would be a fair minimum entry point for fighters in the UFC? Well, when I was listening, what I heard said was he was talking about the percentages and that that's where he was getting the number going from 8% of the revenue uh, as the fighters are receiving to getting 50% of the revenue as the fighters are receiving. And that that would make the huge jump from 10 up to that 100,000 or 125,000. And I think that um, 25 and 25 is, is a good starting point for conversations. But I, I, I seriously think that it's important to get the numbers. We need to see the numbers and we need to know what we're getting because that's the biggest deal. It's not the market share because the UFC has been controlling the market for so long. It's, or excuse me, the market value, whatever the supply and demand is, it's about getting our percentage of the revenue as both the product and the laborer. We deserve a larger percentage, at least 50% of what's coming in. Uh, I know that the NBA just signed a new CBA giving them 51% of what they're bringing in compared to the 8% that UFC fighters are getting. The, what we think is 8%, we don't even really know for sure. So I think the number needs to be dependent upon seeing what the numbers are for real right now. Lucas, I also have one final question for you. Regardless of CAA's involvement, potential involvement, with a fighters association, just looking at CAA alone as a standalone entity, is there any legal ramifications with WME IMG both owning the UFC and then also managing fighters, specifically Ronda Rousey and Chris Weidman? If CAA felt like the, the fighters that they represent in the UFC, if their values were being economically depressed by that dual role that IMG uh, WME was playing, could they seek legal remedies? Wow, that's a loaded question. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I, the answer is yes. Uh, they they could they could certainly file suit. I, I think for either in state or federal court. Uh, and, and you know, just off the top of my head, uh, you know, I'm not sure which either federal statute they might file suit under. Or if there's diversity jurisdiction, meaning the damages are greater than seventy-five thousand, and they're both residents of separate states, they could get into federal court. Uh, but I think that that uh, savvy attorneys could certainly make a case that there's a there's an inherent conflict of interest uh, that, that is that is that is driving down a free market in in that industry, uh, and and that litigation could proceed potentially for years. Uh, but but yeah, I think the short answer is yes. They they certainly could 
uh, file a lawsuit uh, and 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 see where it where it goes. I mean, I I think just off the top, there is obviously an upfront conflict of interest there. Lucas, Leslie, me and Sam both appreciate you coming on the podcast. And uh, I, I know both of us, we, we've been very educated about what's going on. I'm sure our listeners have been very educated. So I really do appreciate both of you taking time out here on, on this Wednesday evening to talk to us. And, uh, Thank and you. Uh, I appreciate you having us having us on. And there you have yeah. Le- Leslie, I appreciate the time. And good luck in your upcoming fight, Leslie. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. And there you have, and there you have Lucas Bye. Middlebrook and Leslie Smith. We really do appreciate both of them coming on the podcast uh, to talk to us about everything that's going on. Very fascinating to hear both uh, both their sides of this story. And you know, Sam, this is this is going to be a developing story as we go on. I mean, this is not you know, it's going to be interesting to see how hot of a story this becomes as time goes on. Will you know? Will it continue to be that hot story, or, or how's it going to go? I'm really. It's we we've talked about all of 2016. How this is just a fascinating year in MMA. It'll be very interesting to see kind of. What's what's this story like four days from now? It's going to make for tremendous theater as the days, months, years progress. And what we have now is essentially a world, a world war being waged. You have so many different interests being contested in MMA on various levels. You know, you have the WME IMG versus CAA feud. You have the fighters against the UFC and the UFC against certain agents and certain other entities within the realm of MMA. You have Bellator's presence trying to gain market share in the industry and and some of the benefits that they uh, may receive, you know, from some of these, these initiatives and actions. It's, it's, it's a crazy time and it's going to be very interesting to watch it all unfold. And, you know, Lucas gave us tremendous insight and Leslie gave us tremendous insight as well. And it's, it was multi-layered insight to the point where I'm going to have to re replay that their segment two or three times before I fully comprehend and grasp, grasp everything that they've laid out. Cause it's just so much information and insight to digest in just one day's worth of, of events. You know, I think one of the things that really just comes to my head is I'm, I'm thinking about kind of, as we begin to wrap up this episode of the MMA Insiders podcast is what if you are a Bellator fighter right now? What if you're a world series of fighting fighter? You, if I was in their shoes, I would kind of be like, hey, guys, how are you helping me out? It, it, but is there any legal exposure that Bjorn would be undertaking by bringing Bellator fighters into the fold? Because we don't know what his separation agreement, if a separation agreement was negotiated. You have to assume that there was between he and Viacom, Bellator, and Spike TV when he departed Bellator. You know, and in that if there is a separation agreement, is there anything, any kind of language that would preclude him from being involved in any type of interest that could adversely affect Bellator? If if, if he was representing fighters, uh, you know, in Bellator uh, from the perspective of a trade association and, and those fighters were negotiating for different things or speaking out publicly in a negative light against Bellator and, and labor practices... Is that something that would violate a potential separation agreement that Bjorn may or may not have signed when he departed? Yeah, that, that's it's an excellent point you bring up. Of course, as I announced earlier on this podcast next week, I am scheduled to be joined by Bjorn Rebney. I, I reached out to Bjorn on Monday, 
And Sam, quite honestly, I didn't think I'd get a response. I, I really did not think I'd get a response, but I got a response. He he's told me he will come on the podcast next week. So I am interested to, uh, you know, as I can sit down over the next couple of days and, and kind of sit and think about exactly everything that was said on this conference call and, uh, you know, and, and see if Bjorn wants to talk about the Bellator days. You know, we, we haven't heard. Uh, Can he even, is he allowed to talk about the Bellator days? He, he may not be allowed. I, I just, I, I'm wonder, wondering, will I get some of the good old Bjorn cliches on the podcast next week? Do we get, this is going to be fireworks. You know, we, is, or, or, I think the new line that we're going to get is, I've, I've taken off my promoter hat, and what I did as a promoter is, is in the past, and now I'm putting on my fighter advocate hat. Yeah, it's... Will we hear that? I, I don't know, but I'm really, you know, I, uh, I, I, I... It's funny, as I told a couple people I'm close with that he was going to be on the podcast, and I think a lot of people had the same thought I had. Wow, did not see that one coming. But, he, you know, he's got to go out there and do the media interviews now because now it's it's about spreading the word of the MMA AA. It will be interesting to see how the ProZufa media reacts. Well, we've already mm-hmm. seen their initial reactions, but it's like I mentioned earlier, as time goes by, I anticipate some really ugly things being directed towards not only Bjorn, but other other principals that are going to be involved in this. The, the, you know, Ari Emanuel is a, from what I understand, is a ruthless, ruthless media player and things are going to get very interesting coming up and also i know it did come up a little bit about the ali act i mean we've talked about it i mean pretty much it's dead i mean i just i don't see it happening but it'll be very interesting to see if that does happen by the way uh if you're looking to watch mma this weekend sam plenty of mma to take in uh you have bellator shows on friday and saturday night uh, both at the Windstar World Casino in Thackerville, Oklahoma. Of course, uh, their Saturday card did lose the main event. The new main event is Darian Caldwell against Joe Timangle, which the interesting note about Darian Caldwell, now training at Alliance MMA. So something to pay attention to there. Also, you have the Ultimate Fire 24 finale, Demetrius Johnson, defending the flyweight title against, well, since this is Wednesday night, we can't tell you who it's against, but if you've been following social media, Pretty much uh, who Demetrius Johnson is fighting has pretty much been out there, especially when someone from Fox Sports screwed up and uh, put it on the program <laughs> guides. So a lot of people did see that. So you got oh, the ultimate fighter. Uh, also on Friday night, you have Titan FC 42. Uh, they did lose a fight on that fight card as uh, their flyweight champion, uh, Shorty Torres, no longer on the fight card. His opponent, Pedro Nobre, uh, suffered a knee injury. The, the word is he blew out his knee. So obviously that fight, they still do have three title fights on that card as uh, one of those guys, Jason Jackson, challenging Diego Lima for the welterweight title. And uh, Jason Jackson told me in an interview uh, late last week that uh, he's basically going to demand the cage announcer actually say his true nickname, which, which is the ass-kicking machine. Apparently the uh, cage announcer for Titan didn't do it last time, and he was a little upset with that announcer for not calling him. So uh, you got Titan FC. Also, there's a car on Access TV. So, uh, and plus a ton of regional MMA going on as well. It's a busy weekend in MMA. I'll be out in San Diego for the Bucks and the Chargers. So uh, looking forward to heading out to California to uh, do another football game. And, uh, Sam, anything uh, you want to promote what's going on with you? I uh, Just, you know, follow me on Twitter, at Sam Kaplan MMA, and just let everybody know so nobody's confused. I will not be on next week. 
But I will definitely be listening, Jason. I, I think there's going to be a lot of people listening. I got to imagine a lot of people, uh, either current employee, current employees of Bellator or former employees of Bellator, are going to be listening. I I can't wait. Yeah, I I definitely can't wait. Uh, it's it's an interview that I have been looking for for the last two years. So, uh, really interested to uh, sit there and, and talk with B1 Revenue. But that is going to wrap it up for this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast. Of course, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Just search the MMA Insiders. Also available radioinfluence.com. Tune in radio and SoundCloud, as you mentioned. You can follow Sam on Twitter at Sam Kaplan MMA. You can follow myself on Twitter at Jason underscore Floyd. Of course, uh, coming up this week, I will have a preview show for this weekend's MMA plus the regular MMA report podcast, uh, which I'll have uh, Ryan Stoddard, the uh, the owner of Victory Fighting Championships, will be on the podcast. Also, Jesse Finney, the CEO of Shamrock FC, he'll be on the podcast as well to talk about his fight cards as he's doing back-to-back fight cards this weekend on Friday and Saturday night, so be on the lookout for that. But that's going to wrap it up for this week's edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast. Follow Jason Floyd and Sam Kaplan on Twitter. Find them at Jason underscore Floyd and at Sam Kaplan MMA. This is the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence. Radio Influence brings you the best in digital media broadcasting. When it comes to sports, we've got experts like national sports radio host Rich Herrera, the fabulous sports babe, former Major League Baseball manager Kevin Kennedy, and former Bellator matchmaker Sam Kaplan. Want a good laugh? Then go on the beach with Pants and Roller Girl, or just LOL with Nancy Alexander. And when it comes to real life, Dangerous Conversation with Scott Ledger and Beyond the Badge with Vincent Hill will make you think. When it comes to what you want, Radio Influence has you covered. Find our programming on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.